for me, the Enneagram is it has been most useful in understanding, especially in conjunction with my ADHD diagnosis, is in understanding why am I reacting this way? Or why did I do this thing in the past? It's making sense of all of the pieces. Hello, and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, before we get started, I wanted to first of all wish all of you very happy holidays and let you know that the Women and ADHD Book Club is back for the new year. That's right, I'm going to be hosting another online book club series to study a radical guide for women with ADHD, which is the incredible workbook by Sari Solden and Michelle Frank. We did a few of these last year and they are just fantastic. I love hosting these book clubs so much. Past participants have said, I've found it nourishing and affirming to be in a room with other women who truly get it. I really appreciate having this space. Book Club was one of the first experiences where I didn't feel I had to be impressive or perform in order to be liked. Thankful for this community of welcoming neurodivergent friends. I loved the format of following a workbook, but having specific sections to discuss in the group. This has been such an important step in my identity journey. Registration is now open, so head over to womenandadhd.com slash book club to reserve your spot. Okay, here we are at episode 117, in which I interview Megan Dowd. Megan is a neurodivergent entrepreneur, brand therapist, business strategist, and coach. With her human-first, biz-second approach, Megan helps new and seasoned business owners build a better human connection with themselves and their clients, leaning into who they are and what they stand for. In addition to her business coaching, she also co-founded Hello CEO in 2020 to help support neurodiverse entrepreneurs to discover where they can thrive in a business world that isn't one-size-fits-all. Megan and I talk all about the Enneagram and some common ADHD personality traits, and we also discuss neurodivergent business practices and learning styles. I really enjoyed this conversation. We had a lot of laughs. Enjoy. So Megan, thank you so much for joining me. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I mean, we already started chatting with an intro and already I'm like, oh, we're going to have trouble keeping this in time. (laughs) (laughs) It's not only that. I mean, I think for the most part, listeners, anyone who's stayed with this podcast and has listened to more than one episode is along for the ride because we go all over the place. There is nothing linear about this podcast. So I think for the most part, the audience is okay with that. I mean, it's a podcast about ADHD, so right, like, right. C- kind of have to know what you're getting into, right? So, but I do like to start out asking kind of when you were diagnosed with ADHD and what was happening in your life at that moment that kind of led you to start looking into it and connecting the dots, so to speak. Yeah, I, so I was officially diagnosed only this year in 2022. It was in January. Yeah. Uh, January is when I, when I requested with my GP, like, could we do a screening? And then 
I had the like the insurance official because of course like insurance in the U.S. is its own cluster that we won't get into. Uh, <laughs> and had the insurance official diagnosis in March, early April. But it was almost exactly a year ago that I was that I was starting to put some pieces together, going, "Huh, hmm, okay, I don't, I don't like how close that hits." Uh, and and a lot of it came down to what I had always assumed was clinical depression, the brain fog, the inability to focus, the listlessness of I really want to do the thing, I have all of the skills to do the thing. Why can't I do the thing? And alongside all of this, back in 2020, I had started a a business for folks who are neurodivergent. And at the time, my business partner had been diagnosed with ADHD a few years ago. So I had had that exposure with her where I was like, well, I don't know if I have ADHD, but I definitely know I'm neurodivergent. And so it was it was a combination of things. Ah, okay. I didn't realize that. Usually, I, I feel like myself included, usually I meet somebody who had a business, realized they were neurodivergent, and then completely pivoted. And we're like, I mean, I've already been working with these people. So I have to call all my old clients and be like, guess what? We have ADHD. <laughs> <Right? Ta-da! laughs> um, so you okay. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, so then but like, there's got to be some retrospect where you were like, okay, that all makes sense. Why we find why we gravitate to each other, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, we we had a very she ended up having a a health crisis almost immediately after we started the business. So, like I don't fault her at all, but we had a very short-lived podcast called Tangents Welcome where we were talking about business and like running a business as a neurodivergent human and tangents were welcome because there was absolutely no way we could try to like have a topic without going on a tangent. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so now what was your role in that business? I mean, you was this brand strategy at the time or what was the business specifically for neurodivergent clients? This business it's called Hello CEO. That was specifically for to be a resource hub. Uh and it still is. <laughs> I say was. It still is. It still exists. It's gone through some changes since my the original co-founder had to step away, so it's just me at the moment. But we looked around and we saw that business education, online business education in the heavy air quotes, online business industrial complex was so not helpful. It was so tailored to a neurotypical mind and it very and and beyond being tailored to an NT mind. It was so it, it rarely took into account different learning styles, regardless of neurodivergence. And it really it started with both of us just being really frustrated with, in our opinion, really lazy teaching and curriculum. And in our opinion, like the people that that affects the most are folks who are neurodivergent. And so not being able to have accessibility in various forms of information, not having the information taught in different ways. So it's all this stuff that we were getting frustrated with. And we were like, you know what? We could do this better. <laughs> we both understand enough of the basics, not even just enough of the basics. We both run our own businesses for a number of years prior to that. And we both saw so many 
so many of the ways that we had worked around the like beginning business initial courses or communities and masterminds or memberships or whatever, we kind of collected all of the ways that we had created workarounds for ourselves and really came together with like, what if we just offered a better version that had all of these points of support, that served all these different learning styles, that could speak to different ways that different brains work and create this resource hub for folks. So that's how we how we dove into Hello CEO. And it was really like, as it grew, uh, we have a membership called the Connection Collective, which is a non-framework, non-teaching <laughs> membership. It is purely like, this is a support place. We have co-working. We do hot seats. Like there's still some there's a coaching aspect to it, but like truly it is so that you can come into community with folks who feel like they might be a little bit of a misfit, feel like they don't do business the right way. Again, heavy air quotes because, and I think, I do think that this is changing, especially in the last few years, especially as so many of us are working from home, entirely from home. But it, it it really was designed, both the membership and, and the space of Hello CEO, to reassure folks that you're not alone and that it's perfectly fine to run an online business, to run a business on your own, to be a small business owner whose brain works a little bit differently. And frankly, there are a lot of us because this type of lifestyle and this type of control over our work and this approach to work is incredibly appealing for brains that do not do well in a cubicle, in a nine to five, in corporate America. Yeah. And often we are running like six different businesses because we can't help ourselves. (laughs) I may have just started my third. I know. That's my joke. I'm like, I accidentally started a new business over the weekend. Whoops. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so now you had mentioned depression. I I know that's something many, many of us are first, especially women are diagnosed with depression and anxiety before coming to an ADHD diagnosis. In fact, I recently heard a lecture on uh, it was a psychologist talking about all of the thousands of ADHD patients he had met with and like how he feels like a diagnosis of depression and anxiety combined is almost 100% a precursor to an ADHD diagnosis, which I'm like, yeah, you think? Um, But it was interesting (laughs) to hear that, that that is almost like guaranteed in his, you know, in terms of his experience with his clients, that that it's almost the diagnosis in itself. But looking back, you know, often when you're diagnosed with ADHD, as we are, like we look back over the course of our whole life through this new lens and think, wow, the signs really were there all along. Nobody knew what to look for. What would you, you're already like, oh yeah, what are some things that you look back on in your life and you were like, oh yeah, it was ADHD all along. Surprise. Hey, guess what? Uh, this The most obvious one that came to mind The first time I was like, do I have ADHD? This was the first thing that came to mind. When I was in high school, had a lot of arguments with my folks about playing music while you were doing homework. That means that you're not focusing. So you can't listen. Stop listening. You cannot have music. You cannot have, you can't, certainly, I mean, watching TV wasn't even an option. Uh, Cannot have other things going on. That means that you're not focusing. You're not trying hard enough. And I always explain to them as like, I need to have music, otherwise I can't focus. I need to distract half my brain so that the other half can focus. And that was always how I described it. And so the first 
time I thought to myself, like, do I have ADHD? That memory came screaming back of like, well, duh. (laughs) You repeatedly told the adults in your life that you could not focus because your brain was doing too many things. So if you didn't have music on, it wouldn't let you do your homework. That feels pretty textbook. (laughs) Yeah, right? I know. When I was in high school, I had this like very dysfunctional studying pattern, which was I would come home and I would literally nap for four hours. I would nap from like 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. Then I would get up and like have dinner with my family. And then I would go to an all night coffee shop and I would go and like drink coffee and stay in an all night coffee shop from like midnight to 4 a.m. And do all of my homework in a coffee shop, drinking coffee and chain smoking. And then I would come home and sleep for four hours from four to eight and then go to school. And I did that for like a year in my senior year of high school. And like, I look back at that now and I was like, oh my God, whatever works. But at the same time, like it just screams, everything about that, it screams ADHD. But I had to work in, you know, all even through all through college, I had to work in coffee shops, not libraries. <laughs> yes. And, and again, like if I was working in a library, I had to have music. If I didn't have something else going on, and, and frankly, it's still true to this day. If I, unless I'm in like deep hyper focus, which yeah, it does happen. Uh, who knew? I have to have something in the background. Even like I'll put on television shows that I've seen a thousand times and suddenly I'm in a flow state. I'm focusing. I'm able to get shit done in a way that I can't normally. And it is astounding to me how once I accept, I mean, this is not personal journeys, but like truly once I accepted that part of myself, it was like, wow, I can, I feel a lot better about life. Not that like, ooh, this fixed it, but like, oh, I didn't, I never took into account what a huge barrier that was. Because it was something that I like that I was always told growing up that like having stuff on in the background means that you're just distracting yourself. You're not actually doing whatever it is that you want to be doing, be it cleaning, the dishes, cooking, homework, whatever. And in reality, I can't operate any other way. You give me silence and that is the best way for me to daydream for the next hour and a half. Right. I feel that I feel that way with my kids and the their teachers. I feel like there are teachers who who get doodling. And then I feel like there are teachers who don't get doodling. And, you know, and right. We're teachers who are really annoyed when they you doodle because it's a sign that you are not listening. And I'm like, no, it's actually quite the opposite. Doodling anchors you to whatever it is that you need to listen to. And so I think like what you were talking about before, I think the experience of many of us was that there is, we were told there's a right way to do things. And then there's your way, which is the wrong way. (laughs) And many of us as children being like, but it works for me. Intuitively, this way works for me. But now I have to not do that anymore and force myself to do this other way, which is the quote unquote, right way. And then I'm like, well, now I wonder why we're all adults. And we have all these trust issues. And like, we don't know, you know, we have, we have no sense of intuition anymore, because we stopped listening to our intuition so long ago. 
True. Well, and we were told that our intuition was wrong, that our intuition was broken. So like, let <laughs> probably not the podcast for it, but wow, that'll do a number on your sense of self. Yeah. Oh, this is exactly the podcast. <laughs> That's all we talk about. <laughs> okay, great. Then we'll go into it. Like, wow, that does a number on your, sen- your sense of self, your self-esteem, because you've been told so many times that the way you do things is broken, the way that you do things like it's not wrong, but it's not right. It, I mean, I'm a child of the 90s, which is the very classic, like, a lot of encouragement and <laughs> there is a lot of encouragement toward a specific end. There was no spectrum that like, oh, well, like, there are lots of ways to do it. No, there's one way to do it, but you can do it. I know you can. You're so gifted. Oh, God. The, the you gifted, have so much potential. Oh, that was That's the one I hear. I heard all the time. Yeah. So much potential. If you just worked harder, you could do this. (laughs) I have what I call the spicy soapbox. And I get on this soapbox quite often, especially with folks with ADHD. The working hard is not our problem. We want to work hard. There is no part of us that's like, nah. (laughs) Well, and I think that's the other thing, too, which is like, there's never a lack of trying with somebody with ADHD. And I think that that's another message that becomes really, like, really screws with our sense of self is the fact that we are viewed as being lazy and not trying and having this character flaw of not caring when the actual, like, exact opposite is true. We care so much. We try so hard. And we're just, like, not getting the bullseye ever. And so, you know, again, we start to give, like, I felt like I just sort of gave up on myself, especially as a young kid with school. Like, I just felt like I really was like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Everybody says I have potential. I don't know what this potential is. But everybody seems to be disappointed in me. And so I'm just going to give up. Truly, it. I my, my high school was extremely academically rigorous. They pride themselves on being in like the top 100 high schools in the U.S. News and World Weekly Report or whatever it is. Uh, we had four valedictorians because like they all had a 4.0. They all hit all of the, like there was no way to separate them. <laughs> uh, also worth noting that I sat down at my high school graduation. I had, I think, 600 some people in my graduating class. And I sat down and I was like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> I've ever seen you before. <laughs> All of which to say, I I really internalized this sense of like, I am not competent. I am not as smart as these other people. Which was really a weird thing to hold when we did... <laughs> Uh, it was, I mean, obviously it was encouraged that like everyone does all the AP classes you possibly can because that reflects on the school's academic rigor and blah, 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 blah. And I got all fives on all of my tests and not all of those valedictorians got fives on all of their AP tests, which isn't to say that I was like, oh, I guess I'm so smart. But like, I truly couldn't, it really threw me for a loop. I don't get it because I I, I thought I was working as hard as them and as them in class, but I'm not, apparently, but I can do well on this test, which leads me to where I'll talk about tangents, which leads me to where I'm going. I just passed my coaching certification, which I am ecstatic about. And I had spent the last month since I submitted my materials in knots that I was going to have to resubmit because I quote, didn't work hard enough. And I was chatting with a friend on Monday when I found out and she was like, of course you passed. I read your stuff. Like, 
were you really like truly not not joking were you really that worried and i had to take a moment and i was like i really have no concept of my own competency mm. i totally understand that because i think it comes back to this idea of trying and there are things that are very very easy for somebody with adhd that are very difficult for the other people and then there are things that are very easy for other people neurotypicals that are really really difficult for neurodivergence like boring domestic chores, you know, or something like that. Like I think about the, the amount of work that you put in is never necessarily going to dictate the outcome when you have ADHD. And so that's really inconsistent. And so like, there are tests that I didn't study for and I aced because I don't know, I just did. And then there's tests that I would have studied an immense amount of, you know, usually things that involve memorization that I <laughs> would have tanked and failed because I just couldn't like hold on to the information. And so it never felt like my effort matched the outcome. And I think that seems to be like, if you think about that, and you, you kind of extrapolate that idea to a lot of areas in our life, like relationships or, or work, you know, there is this constant sense of just like, again, that lack of trust in who we are. Well, and like, again, to take it back to childhood, like, that's what you're taught in elementary school that like, if you work this hard, this is what happens. And so trying to recalibrate for the like, well, this is really freaking easy. <laughs> I didn't put much work in, but I did it. And then I worked my ass off, but I'm nowhere near. I don't know how to hold these. I mean, as a kid, especially like, I don't know how to hold these two things. And even as an adult, like, huh? <laughs> right? Well, yeah. It's mind boggling. Yeah. And I feel like that's another thing I've kind of uh, contemplated a lot through these conversations on the podcast, which is like for many of us who were diagnosed with depression, and, and I fully believe depression is a comorbidity with ADHD. I think ADHD tends to facilitate depression, uh, or at least undiagnosed ADHD. So I don't necessarily think they just are coexisting. But like, I also think that many of us were diagnosed with ADHD because of the fact that we felt broken. We felt like we weren't living there was something wrong with us and that therefore we were disappointing to people in our lives or disappointing to ourselves because we weren't living up to our potential. And so therefore we felt sad and depressed. Right. But it wasn't like, it wasn't a depression the way that I feel like those questionnaires that, that I was always given by the doctor, the DSM questionnaires about like despondency. I never related to those because I didn't, I was like, no, I have an overwhelming excitement about things all the time. So I don't have a sense of despair or like I've given up, but I always just sort of felt like anything I try, I like, I just felt, yeah, like broken, like many of us. So it's kind of a conversation, a theme that is woven through a lot of us kind of figuring out the am I or am I not depressed <laughs> question. I, truly. And I mean, and depression is such a, as with so many mental health things, it like is such a spectrum. It's such a spectrum. The first time I learned that brain fog was a thing, I had a moment. I had a moment because I, up until then, and I mean this, wow, talk about coinciding with ADHD, but I was like, I guess everyone is just better at life than me. Everyone must just handle things better than me, which was the first thing that came up when, when chatting about an ADHD diagnosis. The first time that I really embraced like, oh, I have clinical depression. It was like, maybe I'm not, maybe, maybe I'm not terrible at life. Maybe there's a reason. It's weird to be like, I got so excited when I got a depression diagnosis, but it was true. 
Because that helped me understand that like brain fog is a thing. Panic attacks are a thing. Not everyone has trouble breathing. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. And I remember I heard you talking about that on the Enneagram and Coffee podcast about the importance of the diagnosis in terms of like the label, right? And I think that's another thing, a theme that kind of uh, spoken about in this podcast, which is this idea that like when you cut, when when you're diagnosed with ADHD, everybody else with ADHD is like, yay, congratulations. Oh my God, that's so great. And everybody without ADHD is like, I'm sorry to hear about your disorder because <laughs> they don't understand how life-changing the the identity is because suddenly you have an explanation for all of these seemingly random you know uh, struggles that you had in your life and so it is so wonderful it's such a positive experience to get this diagnosis even though you know we don't we don't necessarily think of it as a pathological disorder the diagnosis can be so important to us to get that diagnosis and not just kind of have this wishy-washy like I don't know maybe aren't we all a little ADHD you know like I feel like it's so important to (laughs) right it's really important to like distinguish between the kind of ADHD lightness that everybody is talking about and like OCD light and all those things that are like make light of uh, the real clinical side of ADHD. That is really, really where we really, really did struggle before the diagnosis or and even after till, but you know. Yeah, truly. Like when we're looking at these specifically mental health, arguably disabilities, disability is contextual. You hear about the like, well, there wasn't like, we weren't diagnosing ADHD in these numbers a hundred years ago. Yeah, because the expectation wasn't that you were working 10 to 14 hours a day, commuting for an hour or two, trying to figure out how you're going to pay for rent, dinner, utilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, of course, were there brains that were structured this way? A hundred percent. No question. Mm-hmm. But it it's contextual. We can't understand disability, and now this is a larger, but we can't understand disability without context. And so truly, like, having a diagnosis, for me, at least, helped me embrace my context, helped me with the like, oh, I'm not, I'm not broken. I'm not the only one. I already was at a point where I was like, I'm kind of sick of trying to make myself function the way I'm supposed to. And having the diagnosis was like, fuck, I'm done. (laughs) Peace out. Peace out, assholes. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> it was it was this marvelous moment of like, I am, I am capable. I can do things in my own way. Obviously, as evidenced by the coaching certification story, I'm still working on it. I'm still <laughs> well, no, but I it. really like I really rail against the like, let's fix your ADHD narrative. And I see, you know, and that's one of the things that really bothers me when coaches kind of use that framework of like, let's hack it, let's beat it, let's fix it. And I'm like, no, 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 there's nothing to fix, right? Like, this is about right in the way, let's surf your ADHD. Oh, 100% part of why I was like, I can't wait to be on this podcast. Katie and I are going to have such a good chat because it's not about the hack. Like, I love how upfront you are about that, like, this isn't about the hacks. We're not fixing it. We're not doing something about it or working around it. Well, and not only that, but I think it actually is kind of predatory because I feel like it, it, 
all right, now I'm totally on my soapbox, but like, I feel like it is exploiting this feeling that we all have that the answer that somebody else got the manual, but me. Right. And so they're always feeling like the answer is going to be at the next, at the end of the next self-help book, or the answer is going to be at the next end of this course or this certification. And I feel like a lot of the time that narrative of like, yeah, fault, you know, we're going to fix this exploits that belief that, you know, we don't have what it takes. And that's it, the answer is somewhere out there somewhere. And that that always really bothers me because I'm like, you're just taking advantage of that specific vulnerability that many of us, especially with ADHD have. Oh, and combine that with the 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 trend in right now, at least in the online business industrial complex of ethical marketing and trauma informed business. And like, good Lord, in the in the metaphorical way that my great grandmother would say, y'all need to go to church. <laughs> Bless her. <laughs> Grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. Oh, she was a tough old bird. <laughs> but truly, like, is any are any of you putting the pieces together? Is anyone actually evaluating what this rhetoric is? Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what's so like insipid about capitalism too is is how easily good intentions can be twisted into profiteering. Well, good intentions are perpetually weaponized. I mean, we all, especially since the summer of 2020 and like the revitalization of the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the various uprising strikes, et cetera, that have happened since then, we've seen a lot of that corporate good intentions weaponized for profits doublespeak i'm just laughing because i i always joke about how like you could always tell who the people with adhd are at parties because they're the ones in the back of the room like talking about the time space continuum whenever <laughs> i'm like this conversation is reminding me of that right now which is <laughs> like hi i just met you oh my god let's talk about capitalism and the industrial complex <laughs> You know what? That's also one of the key things that I realized about myself when I was like, oh, you have ADHD. I cannot suffer. I cannot suffer small talk. I immediately am like, tell me about your trauma. Tell me about the things that make you the happiest in the world. Have you ever seen this TV show? Let's talk about the mechanics of the writing. <laughs> I know, right? I get it. I love it. Uh, so anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to disrupt the uh, flow, but... It was making me laugh. Oh, no, please. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash womenADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash womenADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? 
I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. One thing I do want to talk a lot about is the Enneagram because not, I know a lot of listeners are ob- like obsessed with it. I am not obsessed with the Enneagram simply because I feel very like boxed in by personality tests because I often will be like, I don't know, sometimes I answer it. Sometimes I fill it out and I'm a seven. Sometimes I fill it out and I'm a four. I don't know who I'm going to be today. I feel very like multiple personality-ish when it comes to those tests. And so, but I also feel like some people are really, really drawn by them in terms of like developing their values and, and make decision making and that kind of thing. So I'm curious, like, how did you get into the Enneagram? Uh, I, in general, love personality tests. I find them fascinating. And granted, this is a a semi-personality test. Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies, uh, the Upholder, the Obliger, the Questioner, the Rebel. I am a questioner. So it's no surprise that I'm an information hoarder. (laughs) Whether or not I apply that personality test, I'm like, ooh, that's me. I just want to know. I want to know how all the people are typing things. I want to know, like, how do how they perceive the world and what are the archetypes they see through their lens. That's partly how I got into the Enneagram is like, it's another personality typing thing. So let's go. And it was, again, roughly a year ago. <laughs> a lot of things converged about a year ago. <laughs> About a year ago, a friend and I, I'd been trying to figure out my Enneagram for months and like, just not like in a really concerted effort, but like, just like, I'm not like nothing. Am I a two? No, I'm definitely not a two. I'm just socialized as a two because women are socialized to be helpers. Am I a four? I mean, four isn't wrong, but it doesn't feel right. I, I feel like, yeah, sometimes some days I'm a four, but it certainly doesn't, not always. Yeah, so we were we were sitting around. She, a friend had come to visit from New York, uh, New York State, and I I have a, a campfire in the backyard. So we we built a fire. We were sitting around it. Uh, we in Oregon it is legal, so we had a little bit of weed. We were just like feeling good in that good space, and we were talking about her enneagram, which she thought was a three, and we were unpacking like, oh my god, I think you're a four. So we started reading through some four stuff and she was like, oh my God, no, switch it to you. I can't handle this. It's too uncomfortable. So we started chatting about me and she would, out of nowhere, she was like, have you ever looked at the nine? I was like, well, let's look at it. And then we, so we, we, we looked at the nine and I was like, sure, could be. And then we were looking at the, the subtypes, specifically the counter subtype which is like the the subtype that doesn't look like that number, but it really is, which is the social nine. 
And I read about the social nine and their deep desire to belong, their feeling like they don't belong, their deep desire to facilitate the community. And it was this combination of like, oh my goodness, I'm seen. And oh no, somebody has seen me. I do not care for this shit at all. (laughs) Shut it down. (laughs) And so obviously then I, in my information hoarding ways, I was like, now I'm going to learn everything I can about the social nine. (sighs) And it was, and of course, this was in combination with around the same time that I was exploring, like, am I ADHD? And it was, I mean, it was like, plink, all the things were just starting to drop into place. And for me, the Enneagram is, it has been most useful in understanding, especially in conjunction with my ADHD diagnosis, is in understanding why am I reacting this way? Or why did I do this thing in the past? It's making sense of all of the pieces. And truly, I I, I think that that's true for any personality test. Like, it's only as useful as you find it useful. Anyone who's who's like, oh, Myers-Briggs is the only way or Enneagram is the only way. It's like, no, I don't really care. (laughs) I disagree, but I'm not going to fight you on it. If it's useful for you, if it means that much to you and you found such meaning, that's freaking fantastic for you. And for me, the Enneagram was like, oh, all those pieces. Okay, that, mm-hmm, there we go. Right? I feel like sometimes I get in a logical loop with ADHD because I'm like, the ADHD had that same feeling to me, which was like, oh my God, the why, right? That's what you're saying. It's this why to who I am and why I do what I do. And, and having that answer and understanding it is in some ways combating the huge question marks I always had about why I was wrong or why things didn't work or who, you know, like always going through life with this huge question mark and feeling like ADHD is an answer to so much of that in such a convenient way in almost like every thing comes back to ADHD in a weird way where I'm like, am I making this more than it is? Or the other thing I often get into, which I've talked about sometimes with previous guests, which was like, I was always searching for an answer and always finding things like with personality tests or like with Gretchen Rubin and, you know, HSP is base, highly sensitive person is basically ADHD. They just don't realize it. But, <laughs> but like, I feel like HSP is really just sort of a precursor to an ADHD diagnosis. Uh, good luck with that. Or autism. I mean, the person that wrote it was like, I don't believe in autism, but there are highly sensitive people. And it's like, you want to rethink right? your bias there? <laughs> I you want to rethink right? some things? <laughs> But still, it's just like they, what they have in common is that is the, the 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 why. Yeah. And I almost used to, you know, one of the reasons I always have a lot of self-doubt around the diagnosis itself. Am I actually ADHD? Or did I make this whole thing up? Did I fool my doctor? All of these things when I question. I tricked them. I'm not ADHD enough. Right? Or am I making a big deal out of nothing? How much do I really struggle? All of those questions. And so I've often been like, is ADHD just one more convenient answer? Because I'm always looking for convenient answers. Or is ADHD the answer that I had been looking for all along and finally found. And I don't know, I still have some life left in me. So maybe there's something else out there that's going to happen. And, you know, I always, you know, I'm always like, this is my like ex-Christian side of me. Cause I'm like, you know, I grew up in a very religious household. And so I feel like that searching for the why is as a, the result of my like rejecting religion. And so Again, I'm like, my Christian grandmother would be like, well, if you hadn't, if you had stayed with the church, you wouldn't be seeking for that why. Uh, You know, the why is God. (laughs) 
well, and that's so common with so many ex-evangelicals that like you had an easy answer and you don't anymore. And it's really hard to just sit with that and be like, well, I am happier now. And also look at this existential crisis I opened up for myself. <laughs> I know. I know. I always joke. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm an atheist who still believes she's going to hell. <laughs> that I, wow, I feel that in my bones. <laughs> Woo! Right? That's what it, exactly what it's like to be an ex-evangelical, is to be like, I still believe I'm going to hell. Uh, it's just I've chosen it. But yeah, anyway, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> I got to have you back for that one. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, boy, but, we'll go to town. <laughs> right? But it is, I mean, it's not, it's not a surprise that so many of us have very similar values, right? In terms of our politics, in terms of our upbringing, you know, in terms of our religious values, our philosophies, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence, but so, okay. So let's get back to the Enneagram because you had mentioned that it was, it could kind of help you find clarity in life. So if we're talking about this big, why is that, is that what it is? Or do you feel like there's, is there more that you wanted to expand on that? It it wasn't it's not necessarily a why for like why I exist or purpose really. It for me it was so helpful in understanding how and why I relate to others. Because in I mean, and this is classic Enneagram nine, especially classic social nine, I have never felt like I fit in. I've never like despite having consistent friend groups and friends throughout my life, it always felt like, well, it's like, they're just being nice or, I mean, and a myriad of other things that we tell ourselves, but like, I don't really have any friends because I don't, and it's not a, and this is where it, I was like, oh, it's not a four because it was never the narrative of like, no one understands me, which is very four, but it was just the, I don't, it's because I, I, I don't fit in. It's not quite right. And so it, for me, it's the the why is not the existential why, but the why is the why, why do I feel this way in relation to other people? How do I make sense of myself as part of the community? And, and understanding that through the lens of, of the Enneagram through the social nine has been so helpful for me, especially in building and running my business, because it really explain especially in conjunction with that ADHD diagnosis like oh this these are the places that I thrive in and these are the places that I've been trying to force myself into because that's what you're supposed to do and I don't have to do that I'm just going to let that go it doesn't work for my brain it doesn't work for my personality for how I relate to people why am I forcing this so hard the world is a wonderful wide and varied place there are other people who can do it so why am I putting all of this pressure on myself to do the thing. Well, on the one hand, it's because as an Enneagram nine, you want to like, you want to be of service to everyone and you want to provide for everyone and to facilitate the peace and happy coexistence of the group. And also it's, I don't have to take that on as my personal responsibility, which is a tough pill to swallow. And it's been part of what is helpful to me about the Enneagram. Yeah. Okay. I can, I, I buy that. <laughs> You've sold me. No, I get it. Cause I, you know, I think another thing that is a very common thread with many of us is the perfectionism and like control freak aspect of having ADHD, which sort of feels almost like antithetical to the 
chaotic, frazzled, always late part of the F ADHD. But like, I think many of us, because of the fact that we feel so out of control in our environment and very, we don't trust a lot of our own behaviors a lot of the time, like there is this desire to control what we can control, right? And so it's why, you know, like eating disorders is a perfect example. Many of us have disordered eating or, or have struggled with eating disorders because it's a control issue. And so perfectionism is a control issue, right? Where it's like, where can I rest control where in, in an otherwise chaotic existence, right? And so I think why, like, you know, when you were talking about social relationships. Like I often will, you know, if somebody doesn't text me back, and this is also rejection sensitive dysphoria, but I think like if somebody doesn't text me back, I immediately go into that, like, what have I done to inadvertently offend that person? Of course. And and it's the inadvertently because I'm like, I don't remember doing anything, but clearly I have offended that person because I don't, I do things and I don't realize that I've offended people. I've done that many times where people have dumped me or have gotten angry with me or have done something where I was like, I genuinely don't know what I did. And I think that's also very common with ADHD, which is like, we do things and they're construed differently than how we're meant. And so I feel like that's where something like CBT has really come in handy where I'm like, what is true <laughs> in this moment? Because I've decided that somebody hates me because it's not untrue. It has happened. But I think <laughs> yeah. it can be really, you know, a lot of the time I feel like I don't know where I don't know where I was going with this. I think it was just this idea of like feeling very out of control around uh, just social interactions and how we're perceived is another thing too, which right, which is like, if if I can mask and try to control how people see me as much as possible, then I will feel less chaotic, right? All these things coming together, right? It's a, such a control issue. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I was I was a professional actress for a decade. When I meet people at parties, I initially am like, if it's someone I really connect with, I'm like, hey, heads up. I'm an incredible introvert. You're meeting my theater personality. Because I can be gregarious. I can be charming. I can be the life of the party. And I fucking hate it. But that masking, woo, woo, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And that was the, you know, I think that's another one we, you know, are you an extrovert or are you an introvert question that many again, which is like the are you an extrovert? Are you an introvert pipeline to an ADHD diagnosis? Because I think many of us are also like, I love public speaking. I love getting up on stage. I love performing, but I'm also extremely introverted. And so I could never reconcile those two. And also like I would go to a party and never know if I was going to walk in that door and be the life of the party and have a great time. Or if I was just going to like catch a vibe and be like, nope, got to go home. Like I never, <laughs> I never knew until I was in that moment. Yeah. And honestly, I've found, I mean, deep therapy times with Megan, but for me, I've found it's been years since I went to a party, uh, like a party, a big party where I didn't know everyone because thank you, COVID. Yeah, I don't I do not do that anymore. Yeah, I don't do that. Uh, <laughs> but I would have to make a concerted effort not to mask and not to put on that persona because it was so much easier to be... <clears throat> alcohol. <that. laughs> I actually, like, I never drank. <laughs> oh, see, that was mine. That was for me. I don't anymore, but like for many years, basically my entire teens and 20s, it was, you know, alcohol that kind of got me to that place of like intense masking and intense 
performative yeah. nature. Yeah. For, for me, it was just like, I need everyone. And again, Enneagram 9, I need everyone to like me in this party. And you know what the, so that I am not ostracized from the group, so that I am not othered from the group. You know what the easiest way to make everyone like you is? To be the charming person that every like that I remember everyone's names and I remember the thoughtful details except I don't (laughs) (laughs) because I can't even though I've and that was the thing is that I'd be like I'm sorry I know that I've met you four or five times and I don't remember your name but I do know that you have four dogs and that you've worked at this specific photo business for the past six years and that you are incredibly talented with cyanotype I know everything about you but I don't know your name and then they'll be like, my name's Sally. And you'll be like, okay, oh, nope, just lost it again. Yep. <laughs> like, Thank you. Gonna forget it again. But tell me more about your life. <laughs> right? I feel like this whole conversation has just been a checklist of like, if you, this is basically your unofficial self-diagnosis episode uh, for all the like weird random things. But hopefully listeners are like, oh my God, yes, yes, yes. Uh- <laughs> You're welcome. The things that aren't asked in that DSM questionnaire, but are so very ADHD. I know. I know, right? Hey, friend. If there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, 
my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food or my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one -on -one coaching is right for you. Again, that's womeninadhd.com coaching, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Okay, so what do you what would you say you love about about your specific ADHD? I love the way I connect things. It makes sense to me. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily make sense to everyone. And it's part of what I love about in my business is is listening to people. I I truly encourage folks to word vomit. Like talk to me longer than you think you should. Talk to me till you are bored of hearing your voice because I'm able to pull out like there's so much connective tissue. Like it's the, the classic conspiracy board with all of like, I can see all of that. And I really love being able to put that to use, whether that is when I'm watching a TV show with my husband and we're like, I mean, we're the really obnoxious people. But, but it's good that we found each other because we're constantly pausing it like, do you think this is what's really going on? Do you think this is how this is going to happen because this is going in this direction? And I love that about myself. I love being able to see so many things that feel like they're so disparate and, and don't have anything to do with each other. And then you start pulling on that one thread and you start pulling on that other thread and suddenly you're unraveling the entire tapestry. I love it. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to ask you about your business too in a minute, but I also love to ask if if you could rename ADHD to something that is less confounding or confusing. Do you have a name that you might give it? Either just like straight up executive function disorder or attention excess. Okay. Like it's not a deficit. I'm not lacking. I'm interested in everything all at once. I know, right? I'm a fire hydrant of attention often. <laughs> Truly. Like, and if you get me going, I will fire hose you with information you did not want to know. But suddenly you like you know about a dude who invented his own radio station who convinced people that goat testicle transplants were a good idea. Thank you, John Brinkley. <laughs> you're welcome. Now you're never gonna forget that tidbit. <laughs> I'm totally going to go down a rabbit hole as soon as we get off this call. Oh, he's um, fascinating. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Oh, he, what a weird dude. America's <laughs> a weird place because if you can market it, people will do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah. No, I like that. I feel like that's something. The idea of attention deficit is really misleading for a lot of people because, yeah, I've never, I'd never related to that. It, I, and when it was suggested to me, that I look into ADHD, I was like, there's nothing about that term that made me think I related to it. I never thought of myself as hyperactive. I never thought I had attention deficit. I like it was so such a weird uh, diagnostic, uh, whatever you call it, diag name. <laughs> What's the word? Yeah. I wanted to give a, get a chance to just talk about your business really quickly and 
who are your clients and and how can people work with you and and find you and get more of you? Yeah. Well, if you are purely someone who's like, I just want to hang with the other ADHD and neurodivergent folks, check out Hello CEO. We have the membership called the Connection Collective, which again, it's not about you're going to learn a certain framework. It's just like, here's some other people. And we do and we do things together and we co-work and we have happy hours and we do hot, coaching hot seats. But it's really just like my brain works a little different and I don't want to do business the way everyone's told me to do it. Come on in. We want to party with you. Oh, that's awesome. So and for my own personal business, I uh, refer to myself as a core messaging coach. And I am a messaging coach, a brand consultant, and a narrative strategist. Uh, I delineate those because I think that there are incredibly distinct differences between coaching, consulting, and strategy, and they tend to get all mushed together. So I do my best to make them very, very clear. And then certainly, like, we can work in a combo of all three, but it helps for me, especially because I want to be generous and give everything away. It helps me stay within scope. And it clarifies expectations for folks so they know what's in scope. That's my little soapbox about why we need to clarify coaching, consulting, and strategy. Uh, (laughs) I I work with generally, maybe not the most eloquent way to say it, but I tend to work with folks, industry creatives who are sick of their industry. They're really sick of the like, of the buzzwords, of the this is how business is done in this industry. And they're like, I don't care. (laughs) it's it really they tend to fall into the camp of like, I don't care how it's done, or I am actively sick of it. And I'm done with this. Mm, Right? It goes back to that idea of just like how I intuitively work is is not how you're telling me to. Yeah, yeah. And and personally, I found with so many clients that I've worked with just in general coaching, that tends to come from a breakdown from the really a lack of internal language that they've crafted for themselves around what they do and how they use that language for themselves versus the external language, the the content marketing, the messaging, the launch narrative, et cetera, et cetera. And so my work really revolves around working with folks to solidify that internal language, to find the words, find the values, find the descriptions, find the language that makes the most sense to you. It is internal. No one else is touching it. What resonates with you? And we can talk about the different connotations that these words have or the way that they're pub- like perceived by society. That doesn't matter when you're crafting your internal language. I, I had one client a few years ago we we're going through the core values. And as we were chatting, I, I brought up like, you know, I know that it's not on your list, but I think we got to talk about ambition because it feels like it's screaming from every corner, but you're just dancing around it. And she was like, hey, fun fact, it actually was on my original list, but I crossed it out because I feel like that's the wrong thing to have as a value. And we ended up having this marvelous coaching session around why it was, it felt like the wrong word, but right, why it actually is this deeply held value and how she personally defines it. And, and I think that's the perfect example of like language is so individual. Language is living. That's not to say that language, that we don't take responsibility for how, how language harms others. We have like, we are all social creatures and we live within a larger community. We got to be good to each other. But when it comes to your business, the internal language is all yours. No one else has to understand it. No one else has to even hear it. And then once we've crafted that internal language, then let's massage 
your meaningful message. Let's massage your signature framework or your signature method. Let's craft all of the external language so that it is so specific and unique to that internal language, but it makes sense to people who are not inside your brain. Yeah, I feel like I I notice that more and more because I'm, you know, I'm Gen X. And so I, I, not only do I work with millennials, but then I also now work with Gen Z and like, there is a real language. It's like you, sometimes you need interpreters, uh, not literally, but I feel like there is language evolves. And, um, and I think it is really important to be able to find, like you said, find a language that you can speak in that is, is authentic to who you are and, and where you are in this world, but at the same time, also using a language that's not inadvertently going to alienate other people or isolate you, or especially like generationally, I notice that more and more as I age that (laughs) I'm like, you know, and then I also have a 15 year old daughter who likes to tell me how stupid I am all the time about different things. Right. But a lot, often it comes down to like, well, we're saying the same thing. We're just using a very different language from how we were, from who we, you know, when we were born. (laughs) And I, I I love language. My background in theater was in classical theater, which is all about parsing language and how it feels in your mouth and how you're using certain words in certain contexts. And, and I really love bringing that into my business, into my work now, because language is not just how we communicate, it's how we experience. And I, and I really, I really relish helping folks clarify that experience for themselves with language so that they can then share that experience. Mm. Oh, I God, I want to have you come back and just talk about language for an hour because I feel it's such a juicy topic. Um, and I think, you know, it is something a lot of us experience, especially with our like our coming out stories. Right. Or like how to how do I articulate my experience as a neurodivergent to my family members or to my boss or, you know, in ways that can make sense. To, and, and how can I you know, so many times after a diagnosis, people want to be like, how do I explain to my family what I'm going through? And I'm always sort of like, you don't. <laughs> you don't. This is it's very you don't do it in one sitting. It's your journey. And that's what's most important. Well, and when you don't have a point of reference for what everyone else is feeling, because you've always felt different. How do you communicate that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's nigh impossible on your own, which which is why I like oh, look full circle, bring it back to my business. But like why I tell folks like it's okay that you haven't figured out how to express your values yet. It's not because you don't have values. It's because you need someone outside yourself to point out to you the things that are just so inherently obvious because until we have a different point of reference, until you have someone with outside perspective, it's like back to my parents in high school with the music. Like, how do I communicate to you? Like, I literally cannot focus on anything because my brain is doing too much. But if I can distract half of it with music, I can do anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Megan. This has been awesome. I really enjoyed talking to you. And not like I'm like surprised. <laughs> But um, yeah, no, this has been a great conversation. I really uh, learned a lot in this hour. So thank you so much. Thank you for having I We pre- definitely, I'm glad that you're watching the clock because I was not. <laughs> and I definitely, I was like, oh, we've been talking for like half an hour. Nope. 
Yeah, I know, right? And I have to be really mindful of it, otherwise, because I'm like, I don't edit any of these podcasts. <laughs> you just get them out. So I'm like, I have to be really careful because we could easily talk for three hours. So I'll just have to be back. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to say, I'll just have to have you come back um, and we'll continue. But thank you so much. It's been really lovely. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. <music>